Thank you for joining me on Talking Bass in PDX, the Bass and Warm Water Forum as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark, and I'll be your host. Welcome aboard, everybody. We'll get underway here in just a few minutes. Just got a few pieces of business to take care of. On this episode of Talking Bass in PDX, I have Duncan Stevens of Stumptown Custom Rods on the podcast. But before I get to him, let me talk to you about Talking Bass and PDX. Help us grow by telling your friends about the podcast and where we can be heard on platforms like iTunes and iHeartRadio. Pass it along. Help the podcast grow as we talk fishing here in the Northwest. Well, it's summertime here in the PDX area. Or I should say, it's after 4th of July here in the Northwest, and that means that the weather is warm. But this year, it means it's hot. And that means that there are going to be a lot more boats on the water. Now, I think after this past year with people staying at home and not traveling as much, I think it even means more boats on the water. So just a friendly reminder to use your best manners when you're on the water or at the boat ramps. Well, I met up with Duncan Stevens of Stumptown Rods, and of course, we started talking bass fishing. Now, as you will hear in the interview, Duncan likes to fish for a little bit of everything, but primarily, we, we stick to bass fishing. Duncan grew up in the Northwest, and he talks about fishing in the interview and how he got started at a very young age but how he kind of lost interest in fishing for a few years and then picked it up again. And in the past few years, he's really gotten into bass fishing. Also on the interview, Duncan has a great trip planned to kayak the Willamette River this July, and he will talk all about his trip and how far down the Willamette they're going to go. It sounds like great fun. And, of course, it's in a kayak. So you can pretty much scoot along the river wherever you would like to go. Well, let's get to the interview so that we can hear about Duncan's fishing, rod building, and his trip down the Willamette. Well, Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Don, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it was a great uh, meeting up with you the other day, and you had one of your bass rods, which we will get into and talk about that a little more, and uh, you had your kayak on the car. It really looked like you were ready to go fishing. Oh, yeah, and, and I definitely went out, and I got a decent amount of fish that day, so it was definitely a good day, and it was a good time meeting up with you, so I'm glad that uh, I was able to do the things I did on that day, period. Yeah, that was that was neat. Well, so generally speaking, when I get started with one of these interviews, the, one of the first questions I, I ask is, you know, what was your earliest memories of fishing? So my earliest memories of fishing were actually up in Amboy, Washington. Uh, when I was young, I had grandparents that owned a property and they had a pond and they stocked it. And there was trout, there was catfish. Uh, they even maybe had a sturgeon or two that should or shouldn't have been there, but we would go out in a canoe uh, with my grandpa, and as we got older, we would go out by ourselves, and we would try and catch trout. Now, we never caught trout. I never, uh, maybe one. 
uh, we caught a whole lot of catfish out of that lake. So that, that is my earliest memory of fishing. And it actually, I, I kind of put it down for a little bit as, as I grew up because I didn't really have the ability to do it or anyone to go with. Well, that's kind of interesting, you know, because you, you grew up around a pond, you were fishing, and, you know, like, like a lot of younger folks, even in my time, you know, you, you have to be cool, and so maybe fishing wasn't cool back then. But now, all of a sudden, as you get a little older, it gets cool again. And uh, I noticed, that, like I said, you had bought a kayak. So now that you're starting to get back into it again, back around 2016, what got you started catching all types of fish? Well... I'll, I'll pull it back a little bit. I, I first started getting back into fishing around 2006. I moved around a pond that was stocked with bass. Now, at this point, I had no idea how to fish, none at all. But my neighbor had a large garage sale, and I picked up uh, – I wish I still had the amount of tackle I picked up, but I picked up a lot of bass tackle. So me and my buddies would go down the, the lake that we lived around, and we would try and catch bass. And lo and behold, well, we didn't even know they were bass at the time. Uh, lo and behold, though, we, we would pull them out, and we'd catch them, and, and it, was, it was a darn good time. Um, but as, as we got older, uh, fishing in that body of water became less encouraged. So that's, that's part of what made it hard for us. Um, but around 2016, I, I went and bought a kayak. And uh, it was just a little blue pelican kayak. And I started going out towards Estacada, fishing for trout, kind of going all over, just playing around in the kayak. And, and I didn't have too much luck fishing for trout. I, I just had a little rod that I bought, an ugly stick. And uh, I found that one of the only fish that I was able to really catch was bass again. Um, so I kind of went trying to fish for trout, and around 2016 out of my kayak and, and going towards, you know, Clackamas River and, and more towards the, the mountain lakes. But I ended up in the Willamette a lot because I just found myself a lot better at catching the bass out of the kayak. Well, I guess that some, some people are just, uh, you know, they gravitate to what they're good at. And there's nothing wrong with being a good bass fisherman. So I'm, uh, I'm happy that's the direction you took, although I know that uh, – you know, there are other fish out there, and it's fun sometimes to to go after other types of fish. Now, Oh, yeah, at, no, for sure. I, I definitely, that's one thing I do enjoy. I, I love fishing for bass. I'd say that's probably my, my go-to fish if I want to go and catch fish. But you got to love targeting other species. It's, it's the, the chase that makes it fun, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Now, when you first started catching bass, and, and especially on the Willamette, and you're like, yeah, I can catch these things, what kind of baits were you throwing? So much different baits than I actually use now. Uh, I started off watching a lot of YouTube videos, and I was watching a lot of people in the South. And in the South, <laughs> they're using a lot of crankbaits, and they're using a lot of, you, you know, just a lot of larger baits because we have a lot of largemouth down there. Um, and being a novice, kind of a green thumb to fishing, didn't know a lot of the differences in techniques. So when I first started fishing, I was throwing topwater frogs at the wrong season. I was throwing creature baits way after the spawn, and, and I, 
the only thing I really had luck on was a Senko with a bullet weight. So I, I found myself continually using a green pumpkin Senko and, and uh, probably 3.8 sounds bullet weight. And, and that's when I started really producing bigger fish. Um, so I, I, I think I caught my first large smallmouth, really large smallmouth, right above the Willamette Falls where the Tualatin flows in. And I was with my three buddies at the time, and it was right around March. And I was in a little blue pelican kayak. And I remember dragging the Cinco right next to a log that I hung around. I had always cast near this log because I'd get some you know, small, medium-sized bass. And it just hammered this Cinco. And when I pulled it up, it was a beautiful spawning female. And I think that's what kind of hooked me. Um, but I didn't have as much luck because at that time, I, I didn't think, I don't think I knew as much about the seasonality of these fish. So I was throwing wrong baits at wrong times, but the Cinco always did me luck, I guess, was kind of the issue I had. Needed more knowledge. Well, of course, we'll get talking about how you gain more knowledge, but I have seen a lot of folks over the years that they'll find a go-to bait, and I have one, and they will go out, and some people will try different techniques or different baits, but they always seem to gravitate back. When they're not catching, they'll gravitate right back to where they, what they know they have confidence in. So if that Cinco's working with that, uh, that weight on it, make sure you always have one of those rigged up because that uh, will really help. Oh, for sure. No, I always keep one of those in my tackle box with that. A pretty nice size hook. I, the issue is, is I've had the hooks for a decent amount of time, and I haven't lost them actually. I've had a, a large amount, so I, I don't even know the exact size, but it's my go-to size. I always bring one with me when I'm running low, and just grab the same size. It's there you go. <laughs> and so, and so, as you started to catch more and more fish, now how how have you studied their behavior and? the seasonality and that kind of thing? So I've found through kayaking, I go into the Willamette in February all the way up through November, even sometimes into December. And going out there four or five times a week, you'll really notice when that bite drops off and for certain types of baits, at least for me. And I've really found when it comes to early season bass fishing in the lower Willamette, if you're near the falls at least, it's going to be tough. So I actually tend to stick early season towards the upper Willamette where there's a little bit more water flowing, you know, in fresh from the Tualatin and all of those kind of tributaries. And I try and just kind of stick I mean, I, I'm being honest, I still have a little bit of trouble in, in February and March trying to get a bass, but come, come mid-March, I usually have a good amount of luck dragging some creature baits, dragging some, uh, some you know, baits across some beds trying to target those spawning fish. Uh, and that's why I kind of like that upper area in the Willamette, because there's a big basalt bottom, as everyone kind of knows, and especially up where the, the Tualatin feeds in, it gets pretty shallow, so you can, you can have pretty good luck without getting hung up, but... Personally, as the time has gone on and I've fished more for bass throughout the seasons, I've kind of gravitated towards a specific bait that I've found works throughout most seasons. Uh, and that's kind of 
when you were talking about a go-to bait, what I've landed on, I kind of ended up switching to a, a different style of bait to fish for bass uh, that I've just found to be more productive maybe out of a kayak, um, but it's actually an underspin crappie jig. And I actually put usually a soft plastic on the end of it. And I think the reason I have a decent amount of luck with it is because you can fish it multiple ways. I like to kind of fish it like a bait fish, depending on if the, the fish are actually kind of pushing bait fish up on the shore, if they're shad rolling. You can also jig it up on shores and throw on darker colors and drag it along some rocks, kind of like a little Cinco. Uh, and then you can also just vertically jig it or just dead stick it. So I've found that you can use this bait in multiple seasons and just have really good luck. That's really interesting that you have uh, you kind of developed your knowledge into what I consider to be some pretty advanced um, fishing, especially when you start talking about dead sticking, um, that type of thing. And even vertical jigging can be, uh, you know, a very interesting way to fish. Uh, I know that as that water temperature drops, especially on the Willamette, drops fairly quickly in the fall because it gets a lot of cold water coming through there. Have you tried other bodies of water uh, in the area like Hag Lake or, or any of the, the, the uh, lakes up in the uh, southwest part of Washington? So I have fished Hag Lake, and then I have fished Vancouver Lake as well. I've gone up to Silver Lake as well, and... I, I'm going to be honest, Hag Lake, as everyone knows, with the state record coming out from underneath that, uh, that police dock right there, it's a great bass fishery. Um, now, as that water drops, I do have a little bit of a harder time targeting them out of my kayak. I, I, it's just one thing that I've had an issue with. Uh, and now, uh, what about you, Don? When you're, when you're in a low-water situation, let's say Hag Lake in the late fall, what is your go-to tactic for trying to get some of those large, large bass out of that body of water? Because that, uh, that is one of those goals I've had, and I'm curious about what your opinion is on that. Up there, especially Hag Lake, I will uh, dead stick a bait over in an area, and there's lots of them, but in an area where I can find a drop-off. So I'll look around the lake, and I have a couple places marked, of course, uh, that I will go to, and in my particular boat, I've got spot lock, so I can set the spot lock on my trolling motor, put my favorite uh, bait out there, which is typically a creature bait, and I just dead stick it. If, I, if I'm not getting any bite, I, I even fish slower because the, the metabolism slows down so much on those fish that they're not going to expend any energy to, to go after something, so you've got to get it right next to them. So that's my, that's my go-to out there. Now, uh, at Hag Lake in the fall, that's when the crappie start to bite, so I've got to be honest with you, I go crappie fishing because that's one of my favorites. Well, I got to say, it's making a little bit more sense. Uh, being out of my kayak, being out of my Hobie, it is a little bit harder to stay in one spot. So I, I kind of, while I'm dead sticking, I, I still think I'm blowing around just a little bit too much. So that's a, that's a good tip right there. I might have to just go up, find a drop-off, and anchor up, because I do have an anchor on there, and I could definitely hold in one position more, because I think dead sticking is a pretty underutilized way of fishing, at least. 
in, in bass fishing. And it's one of my favorite ways to fish, just kind of nesting that bait through the water. And it, and it works really well for multiple species. I mean, you mentioned crappie as well. And I've found even dead sticking for crappie in the right spot, if you have the right bait, I mean, that underspin that I was talking about works wonders for crappie. Yeah, the, there are some really nice large crappie up there. Um, I don't tend to keep the ones out of Hag Lake. I like to catch and release. But I have gotten them uh, up to 12 inches up there. So there, there are some nice ones. Um, I use a very small bait uh, when we're up there. It's, it's called a firefly. A lot of folks that know me will know what a firefly is. You can, you can uh, get them from Northland uh, baits. Uh, out of, uh, I believe they're out of uh, Minnesota or Wisconsin, uh, but that they work very, very well, and uh, and I use them uh, pretty much all through the fall and uh, even into the winter because we will fish um, Silver Lake up in Washington later on in the year for uh, for crappie. Now. One of the things, that, as you and I were talking, well, I've got a couple other, well, I'll ask you some of these other questions. Um, one of the things that we were talking about was, and I noticed that you had a really, really nice bass rod, and you said, well, by the way, I make these, and you own Stumptown Custom Rods. Um, when did you get into rod making, and how did you get into rod making? So I got into rod making right about a year ago. Now, my fascination with rods came about probably a year prior to that. I ended up getting a custom-made Lama Glass jigging rod that I absolutely adored. I could use it for almost any style of fishing. It, it was just one of those rare moments where you had a tool that was actually multi-purpose for almost anything you really needed it for, at least as a kayak fisherman where you don't need a lot of length. So this rod was with me for probably well over 150 to 200 fishing trips in a single year. And I was actually fishing in the winter, and I was going for trout, actually. And I set this rod on my car, and the wind came through in the Columbia River Gorge and closed my door and snapped the tip of the rod. Now, at the point, I had contacted Lama Glass and tried to ask if there was any way they had a spare of these rods, and they didn't. They had, they had nothing of the, of the sort. So the only other option that I really saw for myself was to build it myself. <clears throat> and... I knew enough about fishing rods, and I had done enough research about rods after kind of looking into them and looking into what I wanted to buy to say, you know what, I think I can do this. So I ordered just a really rudimentary little kit uh, online. Uh, probably was 80 bucks, And I bought maybe three blanks, and they were actually one was the exact blank for the rod that I broke, and then two were in the same family, uh, but smaller and longer. Now, when I got these blanks, I didn't get the blank that replicated my broken rod. Now, this comes into play in the future because I'm still trying to replicate that rod, and it has taken me down a, a little bit of a rabbit hole. But going back, I just started wrapping simple, simple rods. I was just trying to, to make something very similar to what I had. Um, 
But I, I ended up buying some higher-end thread and, and looking into some thread work. I ended up visiting Great American Tackle and speaking to Gary. And Gary also makes custom rods. He's in Clackamas. He's an awesome guy. And, and he gave me a little bit of tips about wrapping and setting up a wrapping jig. So I kind of put a little bit more money into it, and I started doing custom butt wraps, and I started doing really custom guide wraps and focusing on the intricacies of the components. And it's kind of grown from there. Uh, at this point, I've built well over like 30, 40 rods, and I'm currently working on five for a customer, and one is going to be auctioned off for charity. Uh, it actually is going to be auctioned off for firefighters, and it, all the money will be going to – I need to get the exact uh, organization from Mike, but it's all going to go towards firefighters and helping them and their efforts. Um, and that will be auctioned off in August. So it, it's been a really fun experience. I, I'm continuing to get orders. I have a Father's Day order that I'm putting together for, for a woman right now, and, and it's been awesome uh, kind of learning about the industry and it's really cool because you'll meet people, one like Don, and, and as well people like, like Gary Loomis and things like that where I'll, I'll be constantly buying components and next thing you know you're in his office and you're speaking to him or you're speaking to people that work directly in that industry. And it's, it's really made me learn more about fishing by getting into rod building, and it's been a great experience. Yeah, and, and we'll give the um... – information out because I personally saw one of your custom rods and it is absolutely a work of art. I mean, the um, the blank that you're using, like you said, is from Gary Loomis. And what type of blank was that that you were, that you were showing me? So the blank that I actually showed you, that was one of my Lama Glass blanks. And actually, that is a walleye jigging blank. So it claims to be right around a six, uh, actually, my apologies. Uh, when you saw me, I had my really large uh, seven-foot eight blank that I had all my salmon gear on because I was messing around trying to troll for salmon. So the one that you saw was actually one of the later rods that I made. It was a walleye jigging rod. It is a eight to 16 pound or so. And it's a gloss green blank. It's, it's a beautiful rod. It's, it's got a medium action, but I, I don't think Lama Glass labeled it quite correctly because it has a parabolic bend, but it really snaps at the tip where I think it's more of a fast action. Kind of a, 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 they're kind of weird blanks, and that's why I love them. Lots of bend, but really, really snappy tip to set that hook. But I tell you, the uh, as I was looking at it, and I know you're using some some really nice um, eyelets on it, and the handle on it looks really, really nice. So folks are looking for a nice, I would consider to be a medium price rod that you're building. It's not like over the top. It's not like going out and, and you know some of these guys that are spending a thousand dollars on a rod. But it's a uh, it's a really nice rod, so I I really uh, recommend folks if if you want something that's real nice, uh, you know, get a hold of Duncan and we'll we'll get his information out here in a second and uh, and you can get a hold of him. Let's talk a little bit about your the reel and the line that you like to use. Of course, so I'm a pretty I'm a pretty tried and true guy when it comes to to my reels and line. 
I, I don't variate too much. I, I usually stick to my CI4 Plus Stratic, and uh, I, I keep a 3,000 3000 size reel on pretty much every rod that I have. Uh, I find that it just it carries enough line for some of the deep water that I'm in in the Northwest. And on top of that, it's just an all-around lightweight rod. And, and being in a kayak, that's one of the reasons you have to kind of go up to one of those sadly more expensive reels. It's not that you want to just buy something expensive, but I have to dunk my reels in the bodies of water that I'm in every single time I'm fishing. My reels get completely submerged in the Willamette River and the Columbia River and Hag Lake, uh, in the Multnomah Channel. I mean, in anybody I'm at, because I'm in a 12-foot kayak, and if I have a 7-foot rod, unless I need to land a fish or I need to even untangle line from the tip, it gets pretty submerged. So that's more of a necessity there. The line that I like to use is pretty much a a 15-pound to a 10-pound. Usually, uh, the brand that I I usually prefer, why am I blanking on the brand right now? We'll come we'll come back and and uh, and get that now are you using a braided line or are you using like a like a mono or what type of line is it so it's, it's a 15 pound to a 10 pound braided line and then i always go to about a six pound fluorocarbon leader uh those, those are pretty much the two lines that i use as a go-to and i found if you have your drag set right usually you don't need to up that leader size uh you can lose a fish here and there but I've found that I get a little bit more bites sometimes just having that lighter leader line. And that might just be superstition from trout fishing and things like that, but I do find that that, that fluorocarbon leader makes a difference. However, I am a sucker for just tying straight to my braid and just throwing it out there because they'll, they'll still bite it. Yeah, I have uh, ran into situations where, you know, I broke the leader off and it's like I'm out in the boat and it's like I just don't, want to deal with it, but I generally will stop and tie something on. It may not be the right leader, but I'll I'll tie something back on there. But I know what you mean. I've had I've been tempted. I've been tempted. I just have to say that more so comes from that that Willamette kayak trip after after some time. You really you really get you really get exhausted and after snagging yeah. up a three or four times being in a kayak, it's hard to get to that leader sometimes. So that just might be my lays, you know. There you go. Now you brought that up. Let's let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Now you were telling me that you have taken this trip of 140 miles in a kayak, coming down the Willamette River. And now, where are you guys starting off uh, in the Willamette? So it depends on how much time we have. Some some years we have a little bit more time than others. Usually, it's up above. Peoria all the way to sometimes Eugene, or we usually start right at the Peoria boat launch. Um, but it's, it's anywhere between Corvallis and Eugene, depending on how, how we're feeling that year with how much time we have. The issue with going closer to Eugene is that there's more rapids, and with the pedal drive kayak, that becomes an issue. So when that kayak came into play, it just guys became a little bit harder. Now, this is a trip that you've taken several times, so kind of walk us through the trip, and then now you're going to be leaving the end of August or so. You guys are going to be gone five or six days. So tell us a little bit about that trip. Yeah, so at the end of July, actually, it's coming up really quick. Me and my best friend, Eric, actually, we just 
find the spot at the river that we really want to put in, uh, that's kind of the fun about the starting spot. Depending on where you choose, you get a different little bit of the river to experiment on. So sometimes we go farther up, sometimes we go a little bit farther down, but it's kind of fun to manipulate it. We're thinking about doing Peoria again this year. We launched out of Peoria last year, and it was a great spot. There's a, a channel that we launch in. But it's something that came into my mind uh, probably two years ago, three years ago, when I read a story about a gentleman dropping his kid off to college at Eugene and then just taking his canoe back home. And I was like, okay, if, if someone can just do that alone, then, then I can do that in my kayak. And I, I love fish in the Willamette, so I kind of just got this little spark in my eye that I should do a fishing trip for bass down the entire Willamette River. So I went and I put together some resources. I went and found a map that was put together by Governor Ted Kulingoski in 2004, and uh, it actually labels all of the historical points along the Willamette River, and it gives history of the steamboat era and all of that. So on top of that, I printed onto waterproof paper and then marked all of the spots that are good for bass along my way and, and really good for camping and, and, and so on and so forth. So over time, we've kind of grown this map to be our kind of guide to the Willamette River fishing, at least on the upper Willamette. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's a really fun trip. It can take about six to seven days, depending on how much fishing you want to do uh, or how much time you have. And it, it's, it's a very unique experience. Um, the Willamette River changes a lot, and anyone who lives in Portland would not expect the Willamette River to behave like it does up towards the headwaters, you know, towards Eugene. It, be, it might be a little bit of a surprise, so it's definitely a fun experience going through the river as it progresses, and you really see it slow down and get deeper and deeper, and that's when you can really start kind of targeting a little bit more fish, because uh, we have some troubles up at the beginning, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, uh, years ago, I was uh, uh, quite a bicycle rider, and we did a lot of century rides, meaning 100 miles. We would typically do them in a day. Uh, there was myself and, and several folks that did this. But when I think about 140-mile pedaling on a river, I kind of, uh, uh, I, my hat goes off to you because that's a long that's a long way to go. Now, where do you guys stay along the right along the riverbank as you're coming down? So that's what the importance of the map is. So the map that I have actually has spots that we've identified over time, and that's kind of one of the fun parts, but also semi-stressful parts about this trip. Is you want to do the most fishing as possible, going from point A to point B, but the sun is setting. And if you stay too long at one of the good spots, then you might not make it to where you need to camp by the time it's dark. So it, it is kind of a, a battle because when you're going down the Willamette River, it's private property on the left side and the right side along most of the ways. So you're really relying on banks and your uh, uh, river rock banks, I should say, uh, and kind of shoals 
Uh, and then you're really relying on uh, islands. There, there's some islands and some uh, parks that are along there. We stay at Minto Brown. We stay at Shampooey. And uh, we just keep going down. And, and uh, it's actually kind of funny. One night we spent too much time fishing. So we just kind of said, okay, we'll pull off on this spot up here. Well, we awoke to people walking their dogs by our tents because we were camping alongside a trail in a park because we got there at dark and we couldn't see anything. So it, it, it's definitely a little bit of a, a planning event because you, you could really put yourself in an awkward spot being on that river at night with two more hours to go to your next campsite. Wow, that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting uh, dilemma that you, that you have there. So as you're working your way down, now do you guys – uh, just put out a sleeping bag and pull your kayaks up on shore and look up at the stars, or do you have any kind of a cover, or how, how does that work? So we, we do cowboy camp sometimes. We did that on the first night. It was about 100-plus degrees. Um, but surprisingly, we actually had some nights that, that, well, even the next days, that didn't get up above 65 degrees until, like, two or three. So we did opt for a couple times just using a tent. But yeah, we, we would just pull up the kayaks on the side of the road, or side of the road, side of the river. Uh, and usually there's no worry about your gear because you're in such an isolated spot. The only person that could come take yourself is another person going down the river. So we usually just kind of find a place to relax. On, on the second day of the trip, um, the second night of the trip, I should say, uh, we usually encounter one of my favorite campsites, and it is an island in the middle of the Willamette that splits the river in half. And there is a kind of mud embankment and a little bit of a bay, and you can camp up there. It's perfect for a fire, but there's a decent amount of bank access as well, so you can throw out lines and you can, you can try and get some catfish while you're camping, and, and it's just a good old time. We got a funny story about trying to catch sturgeon that didn't go so well. Yeah, this thing this thing sounds like a great uh, week long trip. Now, when you get down river, where do you guys pull out at? So we can't go past the Willamette Falls, and I think this year we're going to try and continue downward again. So normally, depending on how we're feeling, we'll get out at the Willamette Falls. Sometimes we'll paddle farther down. But this year, I want to go all the way. I want to pull out at Willamette Falls because of the falls, obviously, being an obstacle. And I want to put right back in at Sportscraft Landing, and I want to go all the way down to Kelly Point. I, I, wow. want, to, I want to do the whole stretch in one trip because I've done the whole stretch, but I never really in one single go. So I think that's, that's what I need to do. What a fun trip. Um, yeah, I can see you coming up there to, uh, uh, like, Willamette Park there in West Lynn and then run over to Cedar Oak Island and th put the put the kayaks back in your 5, 10-minute drive, and off you go. Boy, what a, what a fun deal that would be. Oh, I was going to say, and, and we're trying to plan the same trip down the Columbia all the way to – Astoria, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> wow, yeah, you're talking about a whole different animal there. Um, yeah. Now, 
when you now when you're going down river, do you guys count the number of bass that you catch throughout the trip, or do you have an idea of how many you catch? <laughs> we try. Um, we really do. Now I do have to say I am one of those people that still gets childlike excitement from pulling any fish out of the water. So me and my buddy can get a little bit competitive, and it, it can it can more be about, for me, the size of the bass that we caught on the trip. Now, you're kind of giving me a good point. I might need to bring a little bit of a, you know, a, a baseball counter where I can just push every bass that I get and keep a good little count. Because I'm curious, because we probably, uh, I, I, we pull in a lot. And, and that's, I mean, that and the pike minnow that we pull in that are always jabbing our baits, um, I'd like to guesstimate each of us catches probably probably 30 bass a day, 25, 30. And and a lot of the time we're traveling too, but there's spots where you can every cast, if you cast, especially a little fin spin we're using, that that bait towards a rocky rocky shoal, and then obviously just jig it towards you, kind of slowly bouncing it off the bottom, keeping it maybe foot on each bounce. Yeah, you'll you'll get one every single cast, and that's why wow. we keep ending up late towards our campsite. <laughs> wow, it sounds like it sounds like great fun. Now, generally, at this point of an interview, I ask her a few qu- quick questions, but this 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 trip just leads right into what I've got. And um, what's your what's your personal best? What's the biggest uh, smallmouth or largemouth or both that you've caught? So that's the frustrating part. You remember that spawning female that I caught that I told you about? That's my largest bass that I've ever caught. But I didn't have a tape measure. I didn't have a scale because I was pretty novice. Now, I have a picture of this bass, and it's a picture of me holding it. And the bass is about as long as my entire forearm probably past the palm of my hand to my elbow if not longer it was it was a a large bass but that's the frustrating part i've never i've never caught a bass bigger i've never been able to quantify how big that fish was so i'm still searching i'm still i'm still waiting well you're gonna have to catch another one then and have a measuring device because um until you've got proof, it's just a fish story. <laughs> I know. Well, the lucky part is, is I did have my two buddies and I got photos. But like you said, it's a fish story and a picture. It's not. It's not actual. Not actually a, a weight and a length, which is there the frustrating part. What's the most surprising thing you've ever caught? Okay. Um, now this is going to diverge me from bass a little bit. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the most surprising things I ever caught was this last weekend. I went up to Waldo Lake. Have you ever been to Waldo Lake, Don? I have driven by it, but I have not fished it. All right. So Waldo Lake is one of the cleanest bodies of water in the state of Oregon. It's one of two bodies of water that has an EPA designation. That it, They're essentially natural water resources is what the EPA classifies them as. Uh, the only other lake that has that classification is Crater Lake. So everyone told me that there's no fish in this lake. Everyone told me that they never see fish caught. 
and there's there's kokanee and there's brook trout, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. So I was up kayaking at, at Waldo Lake this past weekend during the heat wave, and I was throwing some jigs towards the shore, basically bass fishing, essentially. <laughs> you know, jigging, casting into about four or five feet of water, because I saw a couple, a couple breaks on the surface, which was odd because I hadn't seen fish the entire time I had been there, which was in line with what everyone had told me. Because keep in mind, this body of water has over 100 foot visibility in the water. It's some of the clearest water I've ever been in in my life. But I cast towards the shore and I pull out a probably, and I have photos of this as well, but probably a, a 26 to 27 inch Mackinac, a lake trout. And then the next day I pulled out an equal size brook trout. Now, Mackinac are not supposed to be in that body of water. So the fact that I was told there was no fish in that body of water, I had seen no fish in that body of water, and I was fishing essentially with bass gear, and I pulled out a lake trout, a Mackinac, that, that I have never been more surprised and excited in my life. And luckily, I laid that fish out on my kayak, and I can measure the distance on the kayak that it covered to get the distance of the fish. So I, I think I'm going to do that. But I, I have never been more surprised in my life than that. Wow, what a neat catch. And someplace where, you know, I didn't think there was fish there either, frankly. I was like, well, I know the, you and I have talked about the clarity of water. I looked it up, and I was, I was noticing what they're saying about it. So I'm surprised that you got something. But that's cool. That's cool. I was going to say it was definitely a, a good feeling when – you hear that a, a certain body of water is, is hard to fish in, that people have hard time, and that there's not a lot of fish caught. And you catch not only a brook trout that's a decent size, but a fish that's not even supposed to be in there. So, yeah, it was, it was just a, you have to say, a pretty proud moment on the, on the kind of cold water fishery front. It was, it was, it was different. Well, that is, that is great. Now, this is one of my, my favorite questions that I've come up with lately. What have you what have you dropped in the water, never gotten it back from your kayak? Oh, Don. Don, you're gonna hurt me. My friends make fun of me. Um I have dropped well, I'm gonna ask you a question. Do you want it from ascending or descending order in terms of value? Do you want oh. to the first? Oh, let's start, start with the, let's start with the least expensive. Work our way up. Uh, the least expensive thing I've probably ever dropped in the water that I wasn't able to get back. That isn't baits. I'm not going to classify lures. Um, uh, least expensive, probably a Lama glass rod with a Naski Shimano Naski reel on it, which is about a $245 setup. Um, and once again, that's more out of necessity because I need waterproof reels. <laughs> now, no matter waterproof is going to save it from living at the bottom of the Willamette Falls, but after that, I have dropped my, I had a, a oh, no, I'm sorry. In Hag Lake, I dropped my Leatherman OHT right near the dock off my okay. kayak. So that's about $89. <laughs> Um, the worst thing I ever lost, though, was on the Willamette River trip. I was, keep in mind, this is in, uh, you know, late July, early August. 
So I was trolling crankbaits, and my girlfriend had gotten me a Corrado DC for Christmas, which is a really nice Shimano digital chip baitcaster. And my parents had gotten me a very nice Phoenix Composites rod, which is actually, it was a very nice rod. I really liked it. So it was a very nice, very sensitive bass setup. And I was trolling some crankbaits with it, and I was throwing some creature baits, but I had had really good luck trolling some crankbaits. Now, I was a dummy, and I had the drag set pretty tight. And I was trolling right near Boone's Landing, where the 205, or sorry, the I-5 bridge, and there's another bridge if you're driving south to your right. I believe it might just be the Boone Bridge. Um, but directly in between there, I lost both of those at the same time. And that's a $250 reel with a $250 rod on it. So if anyone wants to go right between those and search for it, it might be there. You can get yourself a yeah. little. So you're, you're probably talking about you're probably talking about the railroad bridge and the and Boone Bridge, which is I five. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. I think right now you've got the top story on dropping things in. Um, I yeah. just started asking this question just a couple of interviews ago. Nobody's really come up with anything near that value. I thought I had the the uh, the top pick, but no, it, it now goes to you. That honor will not belong to you. I was walking out of dock at Boardman, and uh, I was walking down the dock, and I was getting a key out of my pocket to open the gate to go out to my boat. We had a metamorage. And as I pulled the key out, my brand new Jeep key fob that we had just picked up our new Jeep flew out of my pocket Ooh. as I watched it fly into the water only to find out that they're $450. So uh, we, we, we were able to get that replaced pretty easily. But, yeah, dropping that, that rod and reel in the water is tough. That's tough. Well, Don, uh, you just reminded me of something. That's that's actually uh, I I used to work when I was younger for Verizon Corporate, and I actually dropped in a thousand dollar phone in the Willamette River. <laughs> I just remembered this. I uh, this was when I first started kayaking. I stood up on my kayak because I might have needed to go to the bathroom, and I uh, flipped this kayak over, and. That's probably, you know, that's the most expensive thing I've ever lost. That was in a $1,000 phone. But luckily, I didn't have to pay for it. Wow, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I, I have, yeah, you, you have got top billing right now, believe me, top billing. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, I'd like to thank you for, for being on the podcast. This has been a great time. Now, tell me how people can get a hold of you if they want to talk to you about a custom rod. Of course. So my website is just www.stumptownrods.com. You can go to Google and just type in Stumptown Rods and you'll see my business pop up as well. The way that you'd want to request a rod, just go to the website and up at the top, you'll see a custom rod request form. Just click on that tab and it'll ask for your first name, your last name, 
a little bit of information, and then it'll just ask for a, a little bit of a synopsis about what you're looking for out of a rod. And I'll reach out to you, and I'll give you all of the options under the sun that we can put together for you, and we'll build you your perfect rod. Well, that's great. Now, if you didn't get that, uh, Google Stumptown Rods, and I will also put that information in the show notes. So if you want to get a hold of Duncan and get yourself a very, very nice rod, and, of course, I'm sure that you will even get custom blanks, depending on what the person's looking for. You know, so there's lots of options as to what they can purchase. But, uh, yes, can... I actually, just, just to clarify, I actually have a blank coloring uh, person. So if you, if you have a certain color that you want your blank in, I can get that done for you. And you can email me as well. It's duncan at stemtownrods.com. Wow, very nice. Well, Duncan, thank you for coming on the podcast, and it has been a great pleasure chatting with you over this last uh, 40 minutes or so. Don, I appreciate you for having me on, and I look forward to just fishing together in the future and uh, learning about you know fishing in the Northwest even more. Well, I'd like to thank Duncan for coming on the podcast. I hope that you really enjoyed the interview. He's got some great stories. Don't forget to look up Stumptown Rods at StumptownRods.com. Again, StumptownRods.com. Do you have show ideas? Do you have a subject that you would like me to cover on the podcast? Well, send me an email at GoneFishingPDX at gmail.com. Now, I do get several emails uh, per month that thanked me for the show or that I had a great interview on. But I'd like to hear from the listeners out there and let me know what you would like to hear about, and I'll see if I can track it down. Well, I'd like to thank everybody. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the backcast. cast.